Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Cover Story, a podcast by New Books Network, where we talk with people who write, edit, and publish long-form journalism. My name is Aga Popenda, and today we are talking to Professor Matthew Karp from Princeton University Department of History. And the piece he wrote, titled The Politics of a Second Gilded Age, uh, published in February uh, of this year in the Jacobin. Professor Karp, welcome. And could you please tell us a few sentences about yourself and your background? Yes. Hi, I'm happy to be here. I'm glad you guys are interested in this story. Um, I am a professor, associate professor of history at, at Princeton. I teach courses on the Civil War era, uh, the 19th century, and I wrote a book on um, actually slaveholding um, leaders and U.S. foreign policy before the Civil War called This Vast Southern Empire that I'm just going to plug because I think that's what you're supposed to do in these situations. Um, but um, I've also written uh, quite a bit for about contemporary politics for Jacobin, um, starting really with the with the first Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016 and through to um, through to this year. Um, and that's I think the relationship between those my scholarly interests and my political interests is um, is interesting and uh, at least to me. Uh, and I haven't quite sorted it out exactly uh, what the overlap is, um, but I uh, I've, I've enjoyed writing about about both of these subjects over the last five years. Amazing. And I wanted to ask you about uh, the 19th century as a choice for your specialization. Is that a coincidence or why the 19th century? Well, I don't know. I mean, I've always been, I think even as an undergraduate, I was, uh, you know, interested in um, the Civil War era. It's the sort of, you know, the classic and um, titanic you know, struggle, political, ideological, and ultimately military struggle in U.S. history that kind of towers over in some ways even the 20th century uh, in terms of setting the stage for American politics and society. I think it still is it's true that it's the only proper social revolution in some ways this country's ever experienced. Um, and uh, yeah, so in my dissertation research in graduate school, I got really interested in the, the slaveholding South in particular and pro-slavery ideas and sort of, in, in a sense, pro-slavery politics, pro-slavery international relations. The project I'm working on now is about anti-slavery, is, is kind of about how uh, the early Republican Party in the 1850s um, helped transform the anti-slavery movement from a sort of something that was on the radical margins of American politics to the mainstream and really capture uh, political power, uh, first in the North and then in the nation as a whole, which set the stage for uh, the revolution of the Civil War era. So I guess, I mean, I think to relate, uh, one way to relate my 19th century interest to today is that I'm interested in an era of, you know, convulsive ideological struggle and uh, revolutionary outcomes. You know, if you talk about the emancipation of uh, 4 million African-American slaves, uh, uncompensated, violent, um, you know, relatively unique in the, in the Western world, the, the only partial exception of Haiti. Um, and, uh, I, I don't know, I don't know if our politics today is actually bound for a civil war. I don't, I don't actually see it that way, but I am drawn to, uh, the, these kinds of political collisions, uh, in the American past for sure. Your article is, uh, using 19th century history, uh, the period of the first Gilded Age, um, to comment on the presidential uh, 2020 election. I was wondering if this article um, is an independent piece or is it a part of this new book that you're working on, on the emergence of anti-slavery mass politics in the U.S.? 
It's, it's definitely um, independent uh, in the sense that the book I'm, is mostly interested in the period before the Civil War, the kind of um, the moment when these sort of anti-slavery activists and veteran politicos sort of came together and formed this, um, this new political party that, that uh, you know, was really revolutionary in consequence. It, it broke apart the party system and in, in taking political power, it, it effectively pushed the slave South out of the Union. Um, whereas the piece that I wrote is more concerned with the sort of the aftermath of the Civil War, if you will, the, the long extended aftermath when, you know, as I see it, the kind of ideological intensity of those politics about the future of slavery and the sort of meaning of American democracy was in effect drained from American politics in this Gilded Age period as the two parties argued, you know, tenaciously, ferociously about you know, economic issues, cultural issues, uh, in some ways, many in a way that bears many similarities to today. Partisanship was very high. Turnout was very high. Um, even partisan violence was high. Uh, it was a time of great social unrest, I think, arguably much more violent than today's society even. And yet the relationship between politics and, say, class in the country was such that um, real questions of sort of material distribution didn't tend to make it into partisan politics. I would say that differs from the period before the Civil War when even though anti-slavery wasn't exactly a working class movement, and there are a lot of historical arguments about this, it nevertheless represented fundamentally a challenge to a certain kind of ruling class, the slaveholding class, which had by and large governed the United States in coalition with some partners, but had been the kind of uh, dominant party in the American government for the first 80 years of its existence. And this anti-slavery movement overthrew that class through a form of, of mass politics. Whereas the Gilded Age was a time of, um, you know, political roundabout and gridlock where the two parties after, you know, the 1870s, after Reconstruction ended, um, essentially traded office and, um, you know, third parties rose and fell. Um, but uh, for in a significant way, at least, the, 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 this is the, the meat of the analogy to today. The two parties did not, neither party really reckoned with um, the sort of awesome and baffling inequality of the period. Um, neither reckoned with the uh, fundamentally the condition of labor in the period. Um, and uh, in effect, I think the, the the real teeth of the analogy is about the class basis of the parties, that uh, much as it is today, um, the working class itself was divided politically, had no um, natural home or even necessarily a natural inclination within the parties. The, the coalitions were divided fundamentally by region, by geography, uh, and by... Um, by ethnic identity. And I think that's that's ethno-religious identity. And I think that's similar to today. And I think the argument then is that it limits the possibilities for our politics, much as those politics of the Gilded Age were, were limited. Um, uh, you wrote that the second Gilded Age, while uh, rhetorically violent, offers nothing that resembles either civil war or fascist coup. Um, should we expect more political violence? I, I expect so. Yeah. I mean, I think we're on course for lots of, uh, I think, as I wrote, s scattered violence, you know, things like, um, you know, we saw um, we saw the, the coup, uh, the, the so-called coup attempt on, on January 6th, the or, or the, the violence of last summer, you know, police violence, violence in the street. You know, I, you know, I think 
I think, you know, the the sort of bursts of violence that we saw during the Trump administration, Charlottesville and elsewhere, I expect things like that to continue over the next decade or two. Uh, what I don't think, though, is that any of those bursts of violence uh, bear any resemblance to the politics that produced either the U.S. Civil War or, um, you know, the Second World War in Europe. I think it's of a very different caliber. It seems it seems to me much more like the routine routinized kind of violence of the of the late 19th century um, in the sense that it's divorced from really deep uh, either either a profound class politics or a deep ideological politics that um, has the potential to sort of transform the country. I don't think that the coalitions today um, portend that. That's just my reading. I mean, maybe I'm insufficiently alarmist about this, but... <laughs> Do you think that we are at the peak of the polarization or can we get polarized even more? I think that's a good question, actually. I think we can polarize more, unfortunately. And I do think, but I think, you know, so that's a good one. I mean, now I'm, as I start to sort of project the future, I realize that I am much less confident than I should, than I, than maybe I sound because I don't, the real true answer is I don't know. My instinct says though that, as partisan, as polarized as we are now, at least if you look at the demographics, we can be more so. There are still, we could, the Republican Party could continue to transform even more so into a party of, you know, um, white, middling and working class people. And the Democratic Party could transform even more so into a party of uh, white professional class people and um, uh, non-white working class people. That, that, the the extent of that could could get could get deeper uh, uh or maybe even uh even to eliminate the, the 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 trends actually aren't aren't necessarily even going that way when it comes to race because non-white working people are are trending republican too so we could have an educated party and a and a party of the low of the less educated i think that could certainly happen and i think that might um continue to sort of shape the the rhetoric of partisanship in in say congress or in um, or in, you know, even state politics that, that you see today. I think it could get sharper. I think you could see more kind of confrontations, you know, parliamentary type confrontations. I think the, the impulse to kind of override, you know, parliamentary conservatism will drop. I mean, I think you already see this in the Democrats now talking about taking stronger measures against Republican obstruction, obstructionism. I'm guessing that there, that, that, that will increase rather than decrease um, in the in the years to come, on on, on both sides probably. Uh, changing the topic slightly uh, before we come back, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. how the piece came to being? Was it uh, the Jacobin contacting you? You contacting the Jacobin? What's the actual history behind this particular article? Yeah, I mean, actually, I mean, I've been writing about sort of reaction pieces to you know U.S. politics, national po- political campaigns. Um, for several years now. So uh, in some sense, I guess it was sort of understood that I was going to try to write something about this election, about the general election. I'd written a lot about the primary. And in some ways I didn't want to. I kind of thought, okay, Bernie Sanders lost. You know, this is not necessarily my fight. Why do I need to provide, you know, dive deep into these election results? But I couldn't really help myself. And they... They wanted a piece that did some electoral analysis of the general election from the perspective of, of, of class and politics, so of class and party. So I did end up digging into it for, for their issue. And, you know, there were some other people in the magazine. If you if you read that issue, there's some interesting data that, that other staff at Jacobin compiled about, you know, just mapping the country in terms of the, where class politics is going. 
Um, but yeah, but I, it took me, it took me quite a bit to, to write, uh, going into the weeds of, of, of these sort of local precinct results before a lot of the data had gone national, the national data had been released. So I, you know, worked on it through the fall and then winter and then had to keep tweaking it, you know, a little bit after January 6th, changed the conversation a little bit. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was, that was more or less the story of the piece. Um, Talking about similarities between the politics of the first and the second Gilded Age, uh, specifically, what causes this disappearance of ideology and policy? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I guess I want to I want to soften that a little bit. I don't want to say that the two parties today, or frankly, in the Gilded Age, were without ideological differences. Obviously, that's not true, uh, and I think that's probably even more not true about today's party. I mean, it's still the case that. The Democrats, um, uh, you know, uh, and Republicans have there are significant differences in economic ideology that for all of the changes within the, the party's coalitions, the, the Democrats still clearly are the party as, you know, the Biden administration has showed and the fate of its bills in Congress so far showed are the party of, you know, um, taxation and spending and, and are the party of big government budgets. Um, the Republicans are the party of resistance to that and you know, defense of the so-called free market. I think that that's still broadly true. And that is, a, I don't want to sort of pretend that that difference doesn't exist. What I'm saying though, is that that difference, that the, there were just as there were differences say in tariff policy that were quite significant between Democrats and Republicans in the, uh, in the 1870s or 1880s in the first Gilded Age, the Democrats generally wanted a lower tariff or free trade and the Republicans wanted a, a larger tariff to protect industry. And that had real consequences just as say Joe Biden's stimulus or uh, Mitch McConnell's attempt to block an infrastructure bill will have real consequences. So I don't want to sort of, um, you know, let what I'm saying just dissipate into the polemic of, oh, the both sides are the same, they're indistinguishable. So sorry, that's a long disclaimer. What I do want to say, just to make the distinction a little bit finer, is not that the parties aren't different or that they aren't ideologically at odds with each other, but that the stakes of those coalition, uh, of those ideological collisions, both in the first period and in the first Gilded Age 150 years ago and today, um, A, do not necessarily match the intensity of the, of the kind of partisan identity conflict, um, in the sense that we're talking about, at least in economic terms, at least a corporate tax bill that might be four or five points higher this direction or that direction. Um, what's not on the table is something that would be truly transformative in our economy and our society that might truly address, um, you know, the deeper condition of inequality in this country, such as, say, you know, a national health insurance program um, like Medicare for all or uh, even even the $15 minimum wage, which had a sort of a stronger structural uh, component to it, at least. Um, still, I don't think revolutionary, but a really significant reform and was was dropped from the Democratic program that for all the differences economically between Republicans and Democrats there, they don't actually rise to the level of uh, an epic ideological confrontation, at least not in economics. I think when it comes to, um, you know, in a sense, uh, less material concerns about, you know, kind of um, presentation of identity and and uh, kind of the narrative about the meaning of America and so forth. There are very strong sort of rhetorical clashes, but I don't think that that actually qualifies necessarily as a as a in, in my view as a meaningful uh, ideological collision on the level of say the U.S. Civil War or the New Deal era. Yeah. 
Um, so the first Gilded Age was ev eventually followed by the big progressive era. Is there a reason to expect the same now? And if not, what are alternatives? <laughs> yeah, I know that's a good question. I mean, I think some people have said in response to this piece, um, Jeff Cabaserva said, um, uh, I did an interview with him, another historian, and he said, you know, I actually think we're close. We are in something more like a progressive age now, bearing in mind that the progressive age of the of the early 20th century um, as distinct, say, from the New Deal or from the later 20th century politics was a time of significant but still limited reform on the part of uh, progressives like Teddy Roosevelt or Woodrow Wilson, who um, who largely backed by different kind of middle class dominated constituencies sought kind of better government and, you know, um, uh, you know, they did some economic reform, some some redistributive reform, first income tax and so on, but but definitely piecemeal and not um, did not really overhaul, in my view, the economy uh, in the same way. And we may have a version of that with this with the sort of the, the Democratic Party of, of Joe Biden and after it may be that that the Democrats still are capable of of, of pushing for some kinds of limited and even achieving some kinds of limited piecemeal progressive reform. So I think that's that's something that that could happen. What I don't foresee is um, really significant structural um, uh, structural change or a, a structural dent in, say, American inequality. Um, that does not seem to be on the horizon on this current configuration. Mm -hmm. So the Democrats. Uh lost uh, the working class to some point, and you write about it a lot. And you also mentioned that uh, education is often a decisive factor these days, whether people vote Republican or, Demo uh, or Democratic. Um, and you also warn against uh, Democratic arrogance and intellectual conceit towards the masses vo voting against their interest. And I was wondering, uh, what does it say about... Uh, uh, the state of contemporary education. Would you, for example, agree with people like Noam Chomsky, who often say that it's intellectuals and the media and the universities are the most brainwashed, the most you know state-serving group that actually supports the status quo, and this uh, this consent of the masses is a response uh, to that. I think there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, I think that it's interesting. Uh, there's also a lot of uh, probably a lot more complexity uh, to that. I think it's interesting because on the one hand, it's true that if you look at, say, academia where I work or in effect the media class broadly, and you saw this very vividly in the Trump era, um, these kinds of high placed culture, highly educated uh, and effect culture workers, um, culture professionals are among the most liberal, progressive, uh, and sort of determinedly Democrat blue state um, that uh, than than any other group in the country. And so, uh, in that sense, they you know this is I, I don't think that that was quite. It's been true of academia for a while, but I think it hasn't quite been true in the media and in other. Uh, I think it's also true, by the way, in, in, in sort of technology companies these days um, uh, that have grown increasingly kind of you know, connected to the Democratic Party in one form or another. Um, I don't think that that, uh, I, th I think that's that's new. And I think it has an interesting impact in the sense that um, it makes, uh, you know, so-called progressives um, institutionally bound to, to, in effect, the 
lots of lots of status quo stakeholders in our very unequal society, whether it's something like Princeton University, where I work, or the New York Times, or um, MSNBC, uh, or, you know, um, Google. Um, and I think these are all institutions that are have enormous cultural power, and in, in a deep material sense, are very committed to uh, a the, the economic status quo, and yet they're dominated by progressives. And so I think that that shapes, in some ways, the sort of the, the nature of the dis- progressive discourse and progressive political worldview, which is intensely concerned with kind of, in a sense, leveling the playing field often within these kind of uh, mammoth institutions, um, i.e., you know, sort of greater diversity or equity or fairness at someplace like Princeton or Google, um, and yet does not necessarily sort of recognize, see itself or really recognize its cultural power in the society at large, and does not really recognize its relationship to um, the much larger amount of kind of less educated uh, American, you know, working people. And I think that that um, that that kind of you know bubble phenomenon, which I think is really enhanced by geography uh, these days and by media consumption, are uh, is is really troubling to the prospects of the of both the Democratic Party and the progressive movement long term. I won't say that it actually means that progressives are you know that 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 even institutional progressives are you know most committed to you know. Um, economic inequality, for instance, I don't think that that really bears out. But I do think it blinds them to, um, to, to, to sort of really seeing their position or seeing their, um, their relationship to the, the wider country and the wider sort of class system. And I think it, it causes them to sort of condescend to or misunderstand or uh, reject or even loathe um, those in different positions who have different political worldviews. And I think above all, it really drops the pos- it really sort of undermines the possibility of these kinds of progressives located as they are. And frankly, I include myself in this group. I, you have, there has to be some self-awareness. It, it undermines our, I'll say, ability to reach out and connect and make meaningful political cause with, um, again, the sort of two thirds of Americans who don't have college degrees, who are, who have in the last eight years trended toward the right. And trended toward the Republican Party, and simply at, at, at an absolute minimum for the basis of you know sort of holding power in a majoritarian democracy cannot be excluded from the political calculus, and even more so cannot be conclude, excluded from any progressive political calculus. So I'd say it, I, I, I'd, I'd finesse it a little bit that way, but I think the essence of what Noam says uh, makes sense to me. Uh, I think you saw a lot of that in the in the you know the reaction to Trump and the Joe Biden campaign. Um, so yeah, I mean, we could, we could, we could nuance it either. Cause I don't want to make it seem like I'm, um, I'm, uh, excusing or let alone celebrating, um, the Trump administration or, or, or the contemporary Republican party. Cause I really don't mean to do that at all. But, um, if you're, if you're thinking about, uh, where the democratic party is today, then I think you have to reckon with that. Yeah. So people really went out and voted in 2020, uh, but as you as you write, they did it mostly driven by pure hatred to the other side. And I was wondering, should we still celebrate this uh, record election participation? 
Yeah, it's interesting. It's true. I was ambivalent about it myself for those terms because it's it's so fueled by ne- negative partisanship. I, I wouldn't say that negative partisanship in and of itself is is a phenomenon that we have to regret or hate. I mean, obviously, if you're, it, 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 you know, there was a lot of negative partisanship in the anti-slavery movement too. You know, they talked a lot about the slave power. Uh, there was a lot of negative partisanship in some sense in um, you know, socialist and labor movements in, in, in American and in world history about, you know, in terms of its enmity for the, for the, for the, for the ruling class or the capitalist class, you know, when FDR said, you know, I, you know, they hate me and I welcome their hatred, uh, about, uh, you know, the big capitalists in the 1930s, he was engaging in negative partisanship, if you will. Um, so in that sense that it's the, the fact that it's negative doesn't really bother me so much, but the fact that it's, um, I guess partisan along these terms, along these class D aligned terms, does bother me because it seems to to my in my in my view, and there are some polls and surveys that I think back this up, although I don't have them um, right at hand, that um, a lot of the the negativity in the partisanship isn't based against some kind of you know ruling class interest, or it, but is actually you know grounded in a kind of um, uh, sort of a more broad-based dislike for the voters of the other party. So whether that's, and I'll, I'll, since I've been, you know, pushing, punching on the Democrats, uh, I'll, I'll do both sides in this in this example. So whether that that's, uh, you know, a Republican voter in, say, you know, uh, the exurbs of Indianapolis who, you know, lives in a 80% Republican district and um, has, you know, you know, re- watches Fox News, et cetera, and has, um, a sort of an overwhelming, you know, uh, you know, dis- distaste, even bordering on hatred for um, the kind of, you know, uh, overweening liberals and the, you know, the sort of the Democratic Party that enables these, um, these, these uh, um, coddled, you know, university educated elitists and, um, and uh, good for nothings to, to hold power. Whereas, and, 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 it, and it's a broad based hatred of, in some sense, the, the democratic voter, as well as, you know, a few democratic leaders. And I think um, certainly what I'm more familiar with is living in a, in a blue state surrounded by democratic friends and relations. There's a massive, you know, sort of hatred for these sort of mouth breathing, MAGA hat wearing, you know, American flag waving, you know, redneck Trump voter. Uh, I can sum up that caricature a lot more easily because I, uh, I I live among people who hold it, and I think that that kind of um, I think that's a real that's a real limit. I certainly, again, for for progressive or for left wing, let alone socialist politics, to see a you know huge swath of the country that way, uh, to see literally every Trump voter that way um, is is a dire is a dire thing. And so, in that sense, if if turnout went up from 60% to 66% because of that, because of that media phenomenon? No, I don't, I don't know if that's entirely to be celebrated. Yeah. Um, it's hard to not ask you about the state of racial politics since you wrote um, a book, I will repeat the title, The Vest Southern Empire, Slaveholders at the Helm of American yeah. Foreign Policy. And my question uh, would be, uh, what should Democrats do with, uh, you know, accusations of overplaying identity politics in the times where we still have systemic racism? Yeah, it's a good question um, because I do think uh, I do think that you know both of the things that you said are true, 
And I don't think the answer for the Democrats just to, to wipe out one straw man, I guess, is to sort of pretend that racism doesn't exist or to um, uh, abandon core uh, commitments to, to civil rights, to, frankly, affirmative action, to, um, you know, uh, to, to, to sort of ensuring uh, anti-discrimination and fairness and equality for um, you know, the victims of racism, you know, principally African-Americans and uh, to some extent, uh, Mexican, Latino Americans. So I don't think that there's like the answer is to sort of abandon those principles in any sense or really even to abandon uh, hardly any of those policies. I do think, though, that the um, rhetorical turn that the, this kinds of that the, 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 the politics of identity have made in the last uh, I don't know, 25 years, uh, but but cresting even more recently, um, has undermined the party's ability to compete with voters outside of the educated milieu. And I think, ironically, that includes, um, in some ways, many of the same voters that that rhetoric is a- attempting to win over uh, or is attempting to protect um, the, the quote unquote most vulnerable uh, would probably include uh, Latino immigrant workers in Florida or South Texas uh, who by and large trended overwhelmingly Republican in this last election uh, and or immigrant, um, you know, Vietnamese workers in Chicago or Los Angeles who also trended Republican. A lot of um, or to some extent, even in a, in a less dramatic way, but still a, a notable way, um, uh, you know, working class and poor black workers whose neighborhoods uh, trended a little bit towards uh, the Republican in 2020. So I do think one thing that can be said is the um, the the sort of the, the, the contemporary rhetoric of identity politics has not succeeded in um, strengthening uh, Demo- the, the sort of the Democratic appeal among um you know, black and brown workers. I think that if anything, it's, uh, I think it is probably of a piece with the larger sort of um, education gap. Other people have noticed this, that the, that Democrats bleeding votes from Latino and to some extent black workers uh, and, and poor Asian workers too, um, uh, is of a piece with this broader kind of phenomenon of, of class dealignment or, or education polarization because the voters they're losing are not college educated uh, African-Americans or Latinos. It's um, it's 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 the working class. And so I think that the rhetoric of identity uh, is um, in, in that sort of emerged out of academia and has sort of filtered into a lot of democratic politics, the sort of talk about vulnerability and marginalized communities and um, and a host of other academic buzzwords, um, I think, has demonstrably. I mean, I think there are there is survey data on this. Um, undermine the democratic cause with uh, working people broadly. I don't think it's the primary factor here. I don't. I don't want to overstate this or make this the single issue that um, that has sort of determined the course of democratic politics. But uh, if you look at, um, uh, but I think there is there is reason to suggest that this is that this is not helping. That this sort of ident- quote unquote identity politics in its contemporary form uh, is not actually uh, uh, ne- is, it's neither necessary to sort of defend civil rights. And fight racism uh, materially, uh, nor is it um, helpful uh, electorally or politically, even with the constituencies that it's sort of trying to, uh, you know, that it's ostensibly aimed at. So I do think that, I mean, for me, 
the ongoing, you know, the, the way forward in the fight against systemic racism continues to be uh, fundamentally material, continues to be uh, about fundamentally addressing these material um, gaps and inequalities uh, within the working class or between uh, the classes. And something like a national health insurance program, uh, which has broad based support from all sorts of uh, workers of all races uh, would overwhelmingly and disproportionately benefit black and brown workers. And to me, that's the way to actually address both the material injuries of racism and the kind of delicate politics of identity uh, without, in, in effect, playing into the right wing plan to divide and conquer. So I think these kind of broad based universal programs that nevertheless overwhelmingly benefit um, groups that are disproportionately working class uh, are, are to me the, I don't want to say the obvious answer, but that's some, cause there's still co- lots of complexities, but to me, that's the, that's the sort of path forward, um, for those politics. The $15 minimum wage, for instance, is another great example that would obviously, um, you know, have huge impacts on, on say on, on black and brown communities and would, um, you know, strengthen the hands of a lot of those workers facing, you know, different kinds of discrimination alongside all of the, uh, existing, you know, uh, anti-discrimination laws that need to be, you know, enforced. So I think uh, I think that those it, it's it's ironic and unfortunate to me that Democrats have not been able to fight for those kinds of, you know, meaty programs that um, that that both uplift the, the larger working class that could build working class solidarity and that specifically benefit um, these, you know, communities of color that they, that they talk about all the time. They have failed to do that, even as they've sort of rhetorically intensified their commitment to those communities, which I think has left um, in a way that I think has actually increased since Obama left. Obama, you know, if you look at the numbers, I go through this in my piece, Obama, um, you know, uh, uh, performed incredibly well with, uh, with the so-called white working class for a Democrat in the last half century. You know, Obama, um, you know, did far better in Youngstown, Ohio, or the Upper Peninsula of Michigan than he did in the beaches of Orange County or the country clubs of Houston. Um, He won over these white working class voters, and he did it. He represented a certain kind of identity politics, it's true. But if you read Obama's speeches, or even frankly, if you listen to his interviews today, I mean, he's very candid about this. He did not center the kind of language that I think has become um, the norm. Uh, for uh, for Democrats, you know, in the last five years since Trump, um, I think the kind of election of Trump prompted and accelerated a, a turn towards this kind of um, towards to, to sort of centering the the rhetoric of identity uh, in the face of you know the the sort of you know so you know quote unquote white supremacist wave towards Trump, um, which I think uh, had uh, as as, a, as Obama himself has said had the had the had the double effect of um, of, of, of sort of making democratic language in some ways less accessible to, to, to working class voters of all races and actively driving away certain kind of workers, uh, white workers who couldn't really see themselves uh, in this new party uh, in, in a way that they had been able to under, uh, under Obama. So um, anyway, that's a very long winded answer, but I think it's a very tricky question. Um, but I think that the, the sort of two directions that the Democrats have, have followed, which is to embrace the rhetoric and kind of pull away from the big sweeping policy. Um, to me, that's that's the worst of both worlds. Thank you. Um, so uh, you're an expert on the subject of slavery. And I was wondering, do you think that one day uh, wage labor will be perceived as a milder version of slavery? How do you see yeah. it? 
That's an interesting question. I mean, that's a good 19th century question because, uh, you know, the irony is wage labor was uh, perceived as a was much more commonly perceived as a form of slavery when it emerged 100 to 150, 200 years ago um, than it is today, where it's recognized almost unthinkingly as the opposite of slavery. Um, you know, or at least that's the sort of common understanding. Uh, in the 19th century, they were not at all sure about that. Not not just the slaveholders who were obviously self-interested, but, um, you know, uh, radicals and, and early socialists uh, and, and early labor organizers who sort of argued that um, the wage relation, in effect, uh, reduced a worker to a, a, a dependence that was not unlike uh, slavery in the sense that uh, what compelled work was not the whip, but the threat of starvation. So, um, I mean, I think that there is there is, there is a lot to ponder in those critiques. I, I I still have a kind of little fussy historical need to to distinguish between these different forms of of exploitation and to sort of really underline the specificity of um, especially you know chattel slavery in in the Atlantic world in, in the Americas uh, and in the United States, you know, race-based slavery and its very particular horrors and oppressions um, that have had really long-lasting consequences that are certainly very different from wage labor. But I think, yeah, it's possible that in another 200 years, um, under a different setting, um, if, if I, you allow myself to be optimistic in the very long term, if we have, you know, 24th century Star Trek socialism, um, then, and we, you know, say we uncover some, you know, hidden sources of energy or, or, you know, uh, something that allows, um, that helps facilitate, you know, sort of broad-based prosperity under a, under a, a, a you know, social democratic regime, I think we will certainly look back on the 20th and 21st centuries as a time of barbarous exploitation of workers where, um, you know, an illness or a, uh, a car accident or a, any, any bit of bad luck could, um, you know, overnight throw one's own sort of personal life, financial life, um, you know, uh, one's mental health into a place of, of total despair and uncertainty because of the, the preponderant and overwhelming importance of, you know, the need for a wage labor with a job, which is totally um, uh, dependent on the whim of the employer. And uh, I think in some ways we may be heading more, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously rambling here, but as, you know, uh, labor unions continue to decline, especially in the private sector in the U.S., uh, which is continuing to happen despite, um, uh, despite you know, this rise of this, you know, sort of new left and its support for unions. I mean, we saw what happened in Alabama with Amazon. It's of a piece with all sorts of, um, you know, the broader decline of, of wage, of, uh, sorry, of union, uh, union organization. And I think as, as unions contract, um, it's clear that workers have less and less and less power over you know the kind of conditions of their of their work and of and, and in some ways less and less security and are more and more dependent on the benevolence of of the boss so um i don't know i do think that from the perspective of, of an enlightened future we would we would really be able to understand the ways in which this this is a profound form of of um of exploitation and, and injustice uh certainly I mean, I don't, again, I don't think it means it's the same as, as chattel slavery, but it's, it, that doesn't mean, that doesn't excuse it either. <laughs> yeah. 
let's talk about uh, a bit about your hero historians. Was there a book or a person that made you become a historian? Huh, it's a good question. I mean, I'll just say well, I met, you know, one of my early influences as as an undergraduate. I took courses with David Blight uh, at Amherst College. He's now he's now at Yale and he just wrote a biography of Frederick Douglass. And in some ways, actually, my politics and his are, are not really the same these days. I think he's, um, you know, he's a pretty committed liberal Democrat. But his um, his lectures on the Civil War really captured the the sort of the moral and the political urgency and the stakes of that conflict in a very powerful, unforgettable way that I think shaped my uh, my my own interest in my career as a historian. I mean, certainly I'm, I'm going to name call all my advisors now, but, you know, Steve Hahn, who was my advisor in graduate school and Stephanie McCurry, who also advised me, both wrote um, in, in some ways, again, their research is le- was less um, um, directly relevant to, to my writing. They both wrote about Southern politics about African American struggles in the South for, for for Steve, or about the roots of Southern populism. You know, in a, in a sense, working class politics. Um, but um, um, but uh, rat, whereas I've tended to write about you know electoral politics, but their um, uh, the broader way in which they see the world as a as and and they've understood 19th century America as a venue for certain kinds of class struggles has undoubtedly influenced me in in all sorts of indirect ways beyond the fact that they, you know, read my dissertation chapters and so on. So yeah, but I mean, if you want to go deeper, I mean, I would say I would name check, you know, Eric Hobsbawm um, as a as a kind of more global thinker whose work has been, you know, even when I argue with it, I often come back to it. I'd name check Eric Boner, who's another 19th century American historian. I'd... Um, who else? I mean, we could we could do a broader list, but um, uh, I mean, no. Thank you so much. That's uh, you know, I, you gave us some names, and uh, I will check them out for sure. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, since this is a podcast about uh, long form journalism, how do you see the difference between being a historian and a journalist? For example, would you agree that a historian is a journalist of the past or of the past era, or is it something? completely different, completely different approach, different set of tools? It's a good question. I'd have to, I'd have to, that is a common phrase that um, I'd have to honestly think a little bit harder about if I disagree. My glib instinct is to say that I, is that I agree. Um, I do think a lot of historians would resist that in the sense that they would say that the, the methodology of historian is fundamentally different because it's anchored in a certain kind of a peculiar quality of historical knowledge. That is that, you know, the thing that they're covering has already happened. Um, uh, the story that they're, that they're, you know, they're on the beat of a story that has already unfolded. Um, you know, and certainly that's true the further back in time you go. Um, you know, what's the famous line from uh, Hegel, the, you know, the owl of Minerva only flies after dusk. You can only really understand something after it's over. So in that sense that you could say that there's a, there's a deep philosophical gap, gap between, you know, our enterprise and what journalists are doing. But of course that's, that's, that's blurry and uncertain because, um, you know, the past keeps, you know, the future and the present keep bleeding into the past and things keep changing. And, you know, the famous, uh, what's the famous zoo and lie line about the French revolution? Like, was it, you know, was it good or bad? It's too soon to tell. You know, uh, as history keeps changing in the future, um, you know, our interpretations of the past continue to change in really obvious ways. You know, after the civil rights movement, um, historians suddenly discovered that the Civil War uh, was was really about slavery after all. Uh, whereas for the last 
50 years, they had been, you know, largely downplaying the kind of the moral struggle about the future of, of, of slavery and the condition of African-Americans. Um, so I think that the, these processes are much more inter, interlinked. And in that sense, we are probably a lot more journalistic than we'd like to believe, um, uh, which I, in my sense is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I have a lot of respect for journalists and having, I would say the things that I've written for Jackman are exactly journalism. They're more, they're more like essays because they're not really reported they, they're kind of data journalism maybe because i read the electoral re- returns and stuff like that i don't i don't like interview people and so on uh in the same way that as a historian i read um archives and correspondence and so on but i do think that there's a fundamental similarity because in both cases you're trying to wrest a narrative a story out of a you know a chaos of facts events um you know and conflicts and and I think the the way in which I approached writing about Bernie Sanders in 2016 owed a lot to, I would say, my training or at least my experience as a historian trying to make sense of um, uh, and, and to make a story out of um, a series of, of chaotic and disparate facts. And um, I think that 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 ability to sort of to make a story to, and to make it persuasive because a story, of course, is a sort of argument, no matter how objective or, or neutral the journalist or the historian, there's always an argument that's being made in ideological terms, among others. And so to craft that story, to build that argument as persuasively as possible based on, you know, the available uh, evidence to sort of harden and sharpen, sometimes soften and smooth it into shape is, I think, um, a, a, a skill that both uh, historians and journalists, you know, must rely on. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, pr- I would proud, be proud to call myself a, a, a journalist of the past, I think, now that I've, I've argued myself into this position. So sure. <laughs> um, okay. Um, my last question will be about writing itself. Uh, what is writing to you and do you take pleasure in writing or is it again, just a tool, just a form? Oh no, no, it's, it's a pleasure. I mean, it's an art. I wish I were a better writer. Um, but writing, yeah, I think it's impossible to distinguish the, 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 the shaping of sentences from the shaping of, of arguments or stories. Um, you know, you, you need to capture, you need to evoke, um, the, as, as good writing does, as good arguments do, um, the essence of the material that you're trying to communicate in order to sort of be persuasive. And there's a reason why good writing is is more persuasive, both as as as, as an argument or as political propaganda or as absorbing journalism, um, because uh, and a lot of that comes down to sentence by sentence, clause by clause, word by word um, choices that the writer makes. So I don't think that um, this is a question of, uh, of just sort of transmitting, um, you know, like data into a pipeline or, or just writing something up. Um, you know, as if it's a kind of mechanical process. I mean, that's not how it is for me. I definitely, you know, labor and sweat and, you know, hack through, um, you know, my writing, even when it's sort of journalistic, even when it's, to be honest, I do it too much. Sometimes I should just toss things off. And in that sense, I'm not a proper journalist because I take too long to do these things and they take too much out of me. And especially given that you look at the final product and sometimes I read it again and say, well, I mean, that you really worked so hard for that. And it's so wooden after all. Um, but, uh, but, I, but I don't think, and in, in some sense, I would sometimes be li- like to be able to call upon a classic kind of deadline reporter skill of just um, 
you know, of just writing it up. Um, but that's not the kind of journalist or the historian that I've ever been. I've always had to had to sweat a little bit more for this stuff. Um, but in other ways, that's that's the fun of it, I guess. That's the that's the art of it, and that's the that's where the the intellectual struggle of it is. Um, so for me, is in the writing as much as anywhere else. Um, which reminds me, I really need to get back and uh, start writing my my book chapters. <laughs> yes, and we will let you go right now. And thank you so so much for your time, uh, uh, Professor Carp. And again, I just want to let our listeners know that we were talking about your piece titled "The Politics of a Second Gilded Age," published in February 2021 in the Jacobin. Thank you, Professor Carp, for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for the great questions, Aga. <laughs>